Welcome to Geek Gab Game Night. This is a Geek Gab special focused on tabletop gaming. I'm your host, Doranal. Tonight, I've got the regular Geek Gab hosts with me tonight. Daddy Warpig. Oh, is this again? Is this where I'm supposed to say something? I was hoping you'd say hello to everybody out there. Oh, hi everybody out there. I'm Daddy Warpig. <laughs> yes, blogger extraordinaire, veteran game master. Uh, it's great to have you as usual. Um, also, Brian Niemeyer, author and uh, game master. Say hi, Brian. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. Glad to, uh, glad to have joined you. I almost didn't, but uh, we had a slight scheduling change, so I think, I think it's working out. Great. Well, thanks for joining me, guys. Uh, we originally had a special guest, uh, Rick Stump, uh, joining us tonight. However, as is usual on a Geek Gab production, uh, <laughs> technical difficulties have prevented him from even using his computer. But, but so, new and entertainingly different technical difficulties. That's what's important, folks. It's not just that Geek Gab brings you technical difficulties. We bring you brand new, heretofore unthought of technical difficulties that the show has never done before. We don't repeat ourselves twice. Tonight's technical difficulties is a power outage at his house that, that turned off his internet. So, oh, that's horrible. <laughs> and this. And speak of the devil, I see that Rick Stump has joined us. <laughs> hey, guys. One of those nights. We're using my hotspot that I normally use for sales calls, but here I am. Uh, that's fantastic. I, I literally, I wish I had waited 30 seconds because I had just explained that you weren't able to join us. This is wonderful. No, 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 no. Not just that you weren't able to join us. He was also chuckling at your misfortune. <laughs> well, that's fair. That's more than fair. For, the, for those of you who don't know me, know me, I do that to everybody. I chuckle at every misfortune I can. Well, better than crying about it. In in fact, in high school, I chose to learn German because of the word Schadenfreude. Um, <laughs> well, well, allow me to finish introducing you. Uh, you were uh, on the show, on the regular Geek Game show a couple weeks right. ago. Uh, you've been gaming for many, many years, and are conversation was so great and interesting we just had to create a spin-off rpg show just to talk to you some more so welcome to the show thank you very much it's very kind and what's the name of that spin-off uh podcast there uh i'm calling it the geek gab game night cool very nice, very nice. i, I want to say this uh schadenfreude is a great word but it is not the best german word i've ever heard of do tell Backpfeifengeschicht. It is literally means face that should be slapped, but the American translation is punchable face. It's someone with a face that is just so smug or obnoxious or whatever that you just feel the urge to punch them. Oh my goodness. I'm going to send you a link after the show, <laughs> not gaming related. I've got a whole thread of punchable faces. How was that again? Uh, um, oh, if, if that's face, I think it's Gesicht. Gesicht? That's Gesicht. probably right. Yeah. Actually, right. I've, I've, I've got a favorite German word, too. I don't know how to pronounce it exactly, but it's Fremdscham. The embarrassment felt on behalf of someone else who doesn't realize mm. that what they're doing is embarrassing. Yes. Mm. That, that's a cornerstone <laughs> of modern comedy. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the entire shtick of The Office, right? <laughs> 
Right. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> All right. So uh, what I brought you all back here for, um, actually, first of all, uh, I'd like to ask you, uh, should I call you Mr. Stump? Um, <laughs> well, actually, normally in this situation, just call, call me Rick. But I do want to point out, for anyone who hasn't heard the joke before, I grew up as Dick Stump. <laughs> right? Well, it gets better. My father and I have the same name. He's in an older generation. He's a World War II vet. So when he was growing up, of course, Dick was just a name. It was just a nickname for Richard. So since I'm from a very small town in Indiana, until I was 12 and I asked him to stop, I was Little Dicky. That's, <laughs> that's wonderful. So I was Little Dicky Stump until I turned 13, yes. Um, I'm going to stick to Rick. How about that? Rick's fine. Rick's fine. <laughs> um, so our last episode, uh, we were going to have you uh, bounce off of Jeffro Johnson of Appendix mm -hmm. N um, talking about OSR. So before we get into tonight's topic, I'd like to hear your thoughts on OSR, what it means and what it means to you and your games. Well, certainly. Uh, it, you know, it's interesting. Um, I came to OSR Online kind of late, only about 2014, 2015, um, well after it was underway and had been doing very good for a long time. Um, That's even I didn't do. A, I, I had a lot of young kids, so I didn't spend a lot of time online um, about gaming. <clears throat> so I've been thinking about this a lot as somebody who's been playing D and D for forty years, but only started talking about OSR a few years ago. And I think what it boils down to, in my opinion, the OSR is a system where you are making your own version for your own table continuously. Um, doesn't mean there's no rules. Doesn't mean there's not enough shared rules for other people to sit down at your table and play. Somebody else that knows BX or AD&D first edition, whatever, can sit down and, and fit in fairly seamlessly. But it's your own thing that you're sharing with your party. And that's the way I look at it. See, that's a, a really unique take on the whole thing. And I love it because... Um, I don't know if you heard last episode, but I talked a lot about my experiences growing up. And mm -hmm. my, my gaming days were the heyday of splat books, uh, second edition splat books and uh, oh, sure. White Wolf. Mm -hmm. And so to me and my friends when we were learning to play, that game that we were sharing that you're talking about, it was more about the setting and the narrative and the characters and everything like that. Um, exactly right. I mean, I, w I, w I don't want to call it collaborative storytelling because – Role-playing gaming is not storytelling. It's not. But there is a collaboration going on there. Um, the way I think of it is, you know, rule zero, the DM is always right, um, combined with the fact that the earliest games were more of a framework of essential rules, I think, combined where over time you'd come up to a situation where you had to make a ruling, and to be consistent over time, that turned into a rule for you and your table. Um and since I often played with multiple groups, uh, I would have slightly different rules for slightly different groups because we'd had different adjudications. And I think that just colors my opinion there. Um, and again, you know, sometimes I have guys from my Wednesday night game play my Saturday night game and they could fit right in even though the initiative rules were slightly different or uh, we did find traps slightly differently. So I think that just colors my perspective. But, but absolutely, you, you can see a lot of, the splat books, I think, were an attempt to 
overcome that to say, well, rather than having you make a ruling, let's make a ruling for you. And I think that while that may have been a moneymaker, I think it was in the end a mistake. All right. You know, you're probably right. I'll, although, I mean, for a few years, the White Wolf made a lot of money on a lot of garbage. White Wolf made a lot of money, but you know, they look at what happened. They, they ended up having to reboot their entire system because as it grew, you ran into a situation where they started to contradict themselves. And that's fine. I mean, let's reboot. Everybody reboots every now and then. But when you're a system and you've got upwards of 40 books and you have to go back and ed, um, edit them all to make them work, that's pretty serious, and you're expecting a lot of cash investment from um, from your players. I don't know how fair that is. On the other hand, lo let's look at Osric, right? How much is Osric? It's a complete system. It's a very comprehensive system. It's free. If you want to come up with your own set of rules for your own table, it's free. If you want to share it on RPG Now, drive through RPG, Lulu, whatever, you can do it for everywhere from free up to 20 or $30. People can share it. And if something you don't like about it, well, you pencil it in, you move on. You don't have this massive reboot. And I, um, you know, second edition was a great system, right? Second edition is a very robust system. Uh, we have a lot of fondness for the skills and powers books here in this family. But again, this, what's the strength of skills and powers? You do it yourself, right? <laughs> the entire skills and powers books are, hey, here's a bunch of guidelines so that you can um, set up your own rules for your own table. And because of this framework, anybody else can sit down and if they know the rules, they can sit down and play. Yeah, and, and we love that book. Oh, it's a great book. You know, matter of fact, if it was up to my wife, that's all we'd play. <laughs> Although, uh, if I recall back when uh, when we were power gaming, we just used whatever rules were convenient to, to cheese whatever encounter we were in. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We, we had an extremely, extremely lenient GM. It was very fun. Well, you know, <laughs> I think that one of the problems that you sometimes, um, one of the problems that you sometimes see, and I think it's one of the reasons that some people came up with slide books and select the rules were, if you have a powerful personality at the table, a player can actually railroad a game master. If the game master is young or inexperienced or, or, or unsure of themselves, um, a, a charismatic player can pretty much take over the game. And so, and I think that led to some of the uh, rules lawyering from the DM side that so you still is, see to this day. The, the, well, you're absolutely right, because this is why we only let Daddy Warpig run the games. <laughs> <laughs> Either of you guys want to jump in on uh, on what Rick had to say about that? Oh. I think so. <laughs> I wasn't a big fan of second edition. Um, not that it was bad, but that was the point at which uh, the fundamental there are fundamental decisions that were made in D and D that have made it a very robust mm -hmm. game that is easily picked up for people to play. I'm talking not second edition now, mind you. I'm talking about earlier editions of D and D. Oh, D and D, BX, AD&D one, sure. Yeah, all that. Um, BECMI. Uh, when those decisions are over-elaborated on, it produces a system that is both fragile and highly complex. And I'm not a big fan, necessarily, of a lot of those fundamental decisions. Now, 
there's a difference between, I mean, we're on the internet, right? And the number one moral code on the internet is if I personally don't like it, it must therefore be garbage. It's absolute garbage. If I personally don't like it, and anyone who likes it is a bad and stupid human being who should be sterilized to protect the human race from them ever reproducing. Now, I feel kind of strange when I go on the internet and talk to people because I'm constantly making comments that befuddle them. Things like, I didn't really like a lot of the decisions that go into making up D&D. However, that the mechanics that they chose are very robust and have lasted for a long time for a good reason. There's good reasons why those mechanics work. They're just not particularly to my taste. I realize this makes me, this alienates me from like, you know, all but the tiniest fraction of internet users, but that's the way I feel about it. Hmm. Well, let's just say that we're not going to invalidate your feelings. Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> no, we're just going to let that well, in. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're right. There's a, there's a whole lot of stop liking what I don't like. Uh, and that's always been true in the gaming community. Holy yeah. simoleons. Uh, I mean, that's, I think that's a cornerstone. Uh, you get right down to it, there's no such thing as edition wars. Not really. It's just people screaming, stop liking what I don't like. And that can be over a splat book. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I ran into somebody recently. There was a, I think Jeffro talks about it. I think maybe you talked about it. A, an article, somebody saying, well, I love D&D, but I hate Gigaz and his legacy. And you, you'll see this sometimes every now and then. Oh, well, you know, Gigaz was a terrible game designer. Well... His stuff's been in print almost half a century. It's still wildly popular today. Um, it's the basis for 50% of the freaking computer games that we play that are role-playing at all. Um, I don't care what your personal opinion of it is. It's doing quite well. I, and I has been doing quite well for uh, you know, 50 years. You know, so... Gygax <laughs> was a bad game designer. Um, I don't think... Uh, Gary Gagax wasn't primarily involved in, he, he wasn't deliberately designing a game. I'll get back to that in just a second. For yeah, yeah, it was really, it's what happened to him, yeah. Um, it's so robust. But uh, he was really, really awful at presenting a system, at giving a systematized presentation of the rules and at the same time completely failed to communicate the core gameplay, the intended gameplay of D&D. People who picked up D&D who never learned it from someone who learned it from someone who learned it from Gygax had no idea how the rules were intended to work together, and so they played it in a completely different manner. And a lot of the people complaining about D&D saying, well, we have to remove this, or we want to add intelligence scores for for wizards, so you have to be smart to learn wizard spells, and, and we want to remove this rule because it's kind of annoying in play. All of those objections come about because people who came into the game later, who weren't part of the Lake Geneva crowd or friends of the Lake Geneva crowd, didn't really know how D&D was originally intended to be played. You know, I, I hate to be, I've heard many other people talk about this, and and it's going to prompt me to go into a personal anecdote. So everyone buckle in um, because I can get wordy when I'm doing a personal anecdote time. I, I run into people and 
you're certainly not alone that say that to me. I, I, I suspect it's almost the majority of people I talk to online say the same thing. And I also run into the majority of people saying, well, you know, I felt like an outcast and I got picked on for playing D&D and the job. And maybe it's just me, but I find that completely different from my personal experience. And I'm saying it's not true. It's just that, you know, I ran into, I ran into a D&D at the age of nine and played three times with some college kids who'd picked up the books on their own. And then basically it was me and my friends on our own then. And I run into a lot of other sort of Petri dish guys where the books have been dropped in their laps for Christmas or something. They've learned it. And in general, the people I have run into seem to understand very well how to play. Um, my table always had football players and girls at it. I, I can only remember two or three uh, sessions growing up where I didn't have women at the table, girls or women at the table, sometimes adults. Um, so, I mean, I have to accept that the vast majority of people seem to share that experience that you have of it wasn't presented very well. People didn't understand how to play it, but it's so alien to me. I really can, all I can really say is that's never been my experience. Um, Here's one so, tiny example. Um, one of the rules that is, turns out to be key in, in retrospect, once I've learned about it from somebody in the OSR, a friend of mine is actually working with Gary Gygax's son, making a dungeon, making a mega dungeon, uh, sure. clued me into this. You have the weapon versus armor tables, which yes. is X weapon versus Y armor type gives you a modifier. I'm talking first edition AD&D now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like page 35. I can see the page in my head, sure. Um, and that's a really cumbersome rule for a lot of reasons, and it's one of the rules people just tend to throw away and don't even think about. Here's the thing, though. The, one of the core purposes or one of the core competencies of monks is completely destroyed if you throw away that table because Absolutely. monks get yep. massive bonuses against unarmored people, okay? So monks are highly mobile. They can move through the battlefield very easily, and they get massive bonuses against people who aren't wearing armor. Now yep. put those two facts together, and, and what does that suggest about the role of a monk? I'll wait for my other two people who don't know it to come up with something. Take out mages. Yep. Yep. I've got an entire blog article about that, one of the most popular ever. Um, and that's what monks are for. Monks are mage and cleric killers. And again, you, you pointed that out. If you don't look at the modifiers of weapons versus armor chart, which takes up an entire page, folks, an entire page, suddenly broadswords suck, right? If you use the chart, pole arms and broadswords are excellent choices, right? So, yeah, and there's, I'll admit there's a lot of stuff in there. I actually, you know, I talked about it on one of my blogs about Chesterton's fence and how important that is when you start taking out rules and throwing rules away. You guys know the parable of Chesterton's fence? Anybody? Very well. Yeah. And the idea is yeah. two guys are walking down the street. One of, they run into a fence. One guy says, well, let's tear this fence down. It's in my way. And the other guy says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't know what it's for. You take that fence out. You could light a wild bull loose. It could kill children. Let's figure out what this is for. Then we'll change it. And, and yeah, you know, um, Monks or wizard? Well, I talk a lot about what I call the roles, the four roles. Physical offense, magical offense, magical and physical defense, and then scouting and intelligence, right? 
And those are the big four classes, fighters, magic users, clerics, and thieves. And monks are the oddball, because what monks do are eliminate magical offense and magical defense. That's what they do. You can't charm them. You can't hold them. They're super fast. They can kill magic users in one blow. They, they can keep it, clerics so busy they can't cast. So you know, amazing stuff. Um, but it, you know, you, you put it out there, and a lot of people ditch that rule. And another thing is that I find is a lot of people misunderstand um, a key element too. In the front pages they've never checked for parasites or disease for the dungeon master's guide. Parasites and disease. Now that sounds... Parasites and disease, right? <laughs> you get a parasites and disease chart, etc. You start looking at the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide with all the dungeon dressings and random dungeon design, the stuff to put in the dungeon. You start looking at stuff like Lost City, some of these modules, even though it's a, it's a, that's a basic module, not a first edition module. You look at some of the modules and where they're set, how they're set, and you look at that and you realize a shocking number of these dungeons are a lot harder if you just follow the rules and start checking for disease and parasites. Well, one of the examples I, and one of the examples I had was that plus encumbrance. Um, my kids decided to start up. They want to play first edition. So I put them in search of the unknown and they went in and um, the party almost, we almost got a total party kill because they didn't take enough food and water and the monk got a skin rash. Right. Wow. And I, I can hear people listening going, well, why would I do that? Why in the world would I do the disease and parasites? Well, because it's historically, that's what killed half of all the soldiers who ever died. Um, because it makes it interesting. Are you guys going to go into the swamps after so-and-so? They better plan ahead. You better have a cleric along. You better do this, that, and the other. It actually makes a lot of things uh, a lot more critical. It makes the encumbrance more critical. Because you have to have dry clothes. You have to have the ability to cook your food. You know? And we're getting a little afield here, but yeah, when you, when you look at the whole system, and I have to admit, you know, Jeff, uh, D Daddy, a lot of people, you know, sort of skip these rules, but um, old school D&D can be shockingly heavy uh, resource management game. And, uh, and about they, getting food uh, from. And, and they changed that with future editions. They they changed the nature of that resource game. Uh, where oh, they absolutely. Made, you know, they made uh, resource generating spells available at earlier levels. Uh, that sort of thing, and completely removing stuff like that from later editions. Uh, anything related oh, to yeah, yeah. or anything, that would be module-specific. There'd be nothing in the Dungeon Master's Guide about that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Or maybe just but, a paragraph. Think, well, think about the depth that adds to your, your campaign, though. I mean, let's, let's go crazy here. You, you take a look at this, um, and this is a, a real-life example. I'm, uh, let me think, cast my mind back to the... I'm 11 years old. It's 1979, uh, around Christmas time. I've been running my Seaward campaign for about four months, and um, my friend George failed his disease check, and he got a nasty one. You know, chronic, lethal brain disease. So the spot I called talked about the yellow fever. You got the yellow, you got the yellow cough, yellow cough. Just came up on the fly, wrote it down, and within six weeks, it was a major plot point. Um, and now it's built in the campaign about, you know, well, so-and-so's got a cough, and he's got a high fever, and his mucus is flowing, he's got the yellow cough, he's got the yellow fever, we have to go get a sage and get the cure. And it's driven a lot of plots over a lot of the years. As a matter of fact, I think uh, 
Lou Pulsifer might very well remember that the very first adventure I ran for him was to seek out this uh, sage in the mountains who had a, a medicine that could keep you from getting yellow cough, you know. Uh, but these little things mean a lot, you know. Uh, bags of holding only matter if you track encumbrance. Um, I want to I add a modification to what I observed. One of the things about early DMD modules that they did well was that um, not all of them, but a lot of them were successfully, and, and Jeff Rosewood pointed this out to me, um, they were built not just as things people could play through, but built to show dungeon masters themselves how they could build their own dungeons in a similar fashion. So if you came into D&D where your first modules were those old classic modules and and so what I'm trying to say is the way Gary Gygax wrote the game is you can't take the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Player's Handbook and the Monster Manual and just know how to play D&D. You also have to take into, a uh, into account, you know, keep on the Borderlands or the Caves of Chaos or, um, you know, all of those other really, really classic models be modules because they show you what D&D is supposed to be. But now if you fast forward to, let's say, BECMI, where you have the Grand Duchy of Karamikos and all of the modules that came out with that, uh, a lot of which are really, really good modules, like the Island of Dread that came out with the expert set. Oh, great module, yeah. But many of them, or most of them, or nearly all of them, don't communicate that same classic variety of dungeon crawls as the earliest TSR modules. And so people who came in at that point never really picked up on the core of dungeon play. So it may just be a matter of three or four years or five or six years of age difference in when you picked up uh, AD&D or D&D and the modules you picked up made all the difference because the core gameplay wasn't explicit in the rule books. It was implicit in the modules. Um, I'd like to I'd like to follow up uh, more in line with uh, the with today's topic. You you made me think of something, Rick, that sort of has bothered me in my weekly games, um, which is there's a lot of different options of things to do, and there's lots of different checks that you could make and add to sort of your uh, your I want to say day to day routine or turn to turn routine. Right. So so what what I want to know is. How do you prepare for a campaign, or how do you prepare for a session with all of that stuff in mind? Well, if you want to, um, okay, I'll tell you how I prepare. I've got two campaigns I'm running right now. Uh, Seaward, which I started in 1979, which is still running, and Blackstone, which is second edition skills and powers. Um, Seaward, as you can imagine, I'm in my office right now, so I've got about 30,000 pages handwritten on Seaward in here that's not in primary rotation. I've got about 50 or 60 gigs total, maps and, and stuff. Anyway, it's big, it's huge, it's sprawling. I do believe that I've uh, got too much going on. But when I sit down for that one um, with the crew, if I'm doing something big, like they're going into Skull Mountain or something, um, I go through my NPC box. I've got a, a file box with three by five cards. I check and see if there's any interactions with NPC owed to or from any of the characters. Um, and then I go through and I calculate the weather for a week or two. 
using my weather charts. So I know what the weather's like, even they're going to be underground. I check for random encounters before, so I've got a stack of random encounters appropriate to the terrain and the weather and the, and the time of year. I look for things like festivals, uh, religious festivals, conjunc sky conjunctions, planetary um, alignments, anything like that that might be important. Note all that stuff. I go down, uh, if the mod, if the adventure is already written, I write the adventure. I try to tie it in if possible, if I'm uh, with uh, something else that's going on. And then I consolidate that all in about four or five pages, take out one of my temporary maps for the region of the kingdom that's going on, uh, put my notes on the map where things are going to happen, what's going to go on, <clears throat> talk to all the players, uh, let them know the level, the, the rough level I think they should have. Um, if they've got any hints or rumors of what's going on, let them pick who they're going to play. And then after they tell me that, I pass around a sheet that we have. They fill out all the character information on the sheet, so I have it armor class, saving throw bonuses, et cetera, handy. And um, then I calculate any treasure, make any unique treasure items I might want to put, put in that time, um, update any NPC cards uh, that are going on, and then we move forward. Uh, it sounds like a lot. <laughs> it usually takes about an hour and a half. And that's get all for, that done. for how much time of gaming do you get out of that hour and a half of prep? Uh, it depends. Usually... Four to six hours minimum, um, sometimes longer. And, you know, I cheat. Like, if they're going into Skull Mountain, I've been working on that for years. If they're doing something new, um, yeah, we get four to six hours easy out of a, a session like that. Um, as a matter of fact, we, I should take that back. It's more than that, six to nine hours. Six to nine hours. Now, on the other hand, sometimes we'll do what we call pickup, and that's this is what I do for a pickup. Hey, uh, we want to go to an adventure. We got some time. We weren't planning it. I grab the, um, my encounter charts, I roll three encounters, I figure out how to make at least two of them into an adventure, write that down, and we start in 20 minutes. So, <laughs> run the whole gamut. But yeah, when I'm doing a preparation for an adventure, it takes me about an hour and a half, but when I'm done, I've got everything from random encounters to the weather, and um, even what phases of the moon and the tide's going to look like, because I worked that out on charts a long time ago. Um, so, so this actually this presupposes a ton of prior setup that you you've built on your you you've, you've built on sure. years and years of gaming. Well, you know, I actually wrote about this not too long ago. I've got um, when I did Blackstone, I did it whole cloth. It took this took me about four no, not even it took me about sixteen days to do this. Um, we wanted to start a new campaign. My kids rolled enough that they could all start a campaign. So this is about nine ten years ago. Talked to the wife, I sat down, and I made it. Made it. I started off with uh, a precess of history from the late Paleolithic up to the current day. Uh, came up with the dynastic periods, came up with a calendar, a world map, tides, major trade routes, uh, major catastrophic events, timeline of magic development, that whole thing, drew um, political boundaries, came up with unique coinage, created the names for 14 languages, actually worked out 20 to 50 words in four artificial languages, including basic syntax, um, made about 200 NPCs, at least brief notes. Some of them were very fleshed out. Did four regional maps to the maps of three castles and two villages. Um, came up with a detailed backstory of the local villages and cities, on and on and on. Um, I'm skipping a lot. 
And I did that all in about two weeks um, in order to get ready for what I knew was going to be a decade of gaming. Um, that's over the top. I'm going to flat out say that's over the top. Most of that is because I enjoy doing that. You know, I still have 150 of those NPCs I've never used. And it's been nine years. Um, so you can do a lot to prepare. Now, having that all done makes it really easy when somebody says, hey, um, what time of year is it? Oh, it's cold even. You know, I'm just, uh, excuse me, it's, it's frost flowers right now. It's snowing. The weather's about 40 degrees. And you can see the pommel star rising in the east, so it must be almost midnight. That's easy. Now, you can do that off the top of your head and just write it down. You can simply say, oh, it's, you know, it's cold. <laughs> that doesn't matter. But that detail, it, it seeps out. It, it comes out when you're talking to your players. It makes it a little more facile to do, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. No? When I first started Seaward, I had a piece of paper torn out of a notebook. I used a pencil to put a coastline in put an X where the pirates were and put a circle where the village was. And that was fine for a year, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you can go either way, but yeah, my, my preparation is, is pretty over the top, um, including con languages and sky charts. And... I'll say, I think I'm, I think I may have OCD. I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that sounds like a great framework for uh, someone who has uh long weekend session games in their own world that they built. Well, yeah, I am lucky right now, especially um, when we do, uh, we, we do gaming, I sort of have a captive audience for my party. I got a party of five very consistent players. Uh, my four oldest sons and my wife. Um, it's a very popular hobby. So we play two or three times a month. I, this is nowhere near the most I've ever played. And uh, they're, they're committed to the campaign, and, and they have a very deep understanding of the rules. As a matter of fact, I'm at the point now where my 14-year-old is so conversant with the rules. When we want to know what's going on, we just ask him. And that's compared to me, who's been reading them for, you know, 40 years. Um, so, I, I, you know, I kind of have an edge that way. Now, my children have all done their own campaigning in D&D and other systems. And they run the gamut from... Um, well, here's a town and there's a desert. Let's go to, up to um, my uh, third son. Probably put in three months of work before he let us do anything. So preparation can be preparation is what you want to do. You don't have to do a lot of preparation. Well, you guys have heard the joke about the orc and a pie, right? Money cook. Yeah, exactly. Money. Uh, an orc and a pie. There's a ten by ten room inside is an orc. He has a pie. And as he points out, that's a complete adventure. Well, I would take the next next step. That's actually a complete campaign, right? That's a campaign. Where does the orc live? Where does he get the pie? Where are the fruit trees? I mean, you know, you just start taking these steps back, and um, I think that if you start thinking about that in, like, starting with an orc and a pie as a campaign, it becomes really obvious what you need to make a campaign. You just have to be able to explain where do the things the players need come from and then everything else just falls into place your your level of preparation actually reminds me of uh, what brian was telling me brian has the same sort of situation with uh, uh, a pretty consistent group in years of history brian mm -hmm. is your prep sort of the same no 
<laughs> I originally I did. I would stay up until the wee hours of the morning, mainly when I was back in college and mm. just fill notebooks with with game plans, uh, usually before campaign started. But you know, as the years have gone on, uh, but I suppose I should amend that because I now run almost exclusively uh, my own homebrewed systems that me and my friends have come up with. So, yeah, for the most, like for the last game I ran, I did more prep than I ever have done because I wrote like five rule books. But in terms of planning out the actual sessions, I'll just like write a, a story hook and, okay, here are some NPCs, you know, here's what they know. Here's, you know, what's in the chests, as it were. And, you know, then I'll really just pass the ball to the players. And kind of react to to what they do. You've got uh, you've got a fortunate situation that you could react to that. Yeah, like I've said before, I just know these guys so well that I pretty much know how their characters are going to react beforehand. Mm. It does help. And, yeah, and if they throw me a curveball, yeah, I, I just run with it. I have to admit, one of, the, one of the great joys of my life is I run for my own children, and they still surprise me every game. I love hearing that. Uh, <laughs> it's it's funny that you guys say that because I'm in a different scenario. I don't play off the players in that same way. I'm I'm pretty bad at sort of shooting from the hip. Uh, I I run a short game, like two to three hours. Uh, every week or every other week, and it's out of a mega dungeon, and I pretty much just run with that. Listen, the mega dungeons—that's what they're great for. And, and I know it sounds weird, but you get a massive mega dungeon with lots of development and stuff. Oh, we've only got two hours. Okay, that works. <laughs> and and we've been playing for over a year, and they still haven't finished it. I, I'm gonna have to think of uh, something soon. So uh, it sounds like the technical difficulties are going to rear their ugly head again. Yeah, guys, like I said, I'm using a hot spot. I wasn't prepared for this, and I'm losing battery power. I'm going to bow out before I glitch out. I, I apologize profusely. I had a great time, and I look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Uh, thanks for coming on, Rick. Do you have 30 seconds for a quick question? Absolutely. Corey M. in the chat room asks, what kind of notes should a GM keep or make? I, I think the most important notes are the stuff that uh, it, your characters are going to remember, the players are going to remember. Uh, that way you can be consistent if they ask again. That's a great answer because they keep asking me, hey, did such and such happen? And I'm like, guys, I have no idea. You should have written that down. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, guys. I apologize, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for coming on, Rick. Go for it, guys. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on that question, too. Yeah, I, I agree with Rick, and I'll expand on that a bit. It's very important to maintain a sense of consistency to help with the immersion of your secondary world. So, you know, if there's a pub that you just came up with off the top of your head where the, the characters stop and in one adventure, you'd better note that down because... If, you know, months or even years later, they, they come back to that same town and one of them says, oh, yeah, let, let's go back to that one pub we're at. I, I love their meat pies. 
you'd better, better be able to reproduce that convincingly. I am so bad about writing down the notes I should that it's almost worth it to hire a stenographer to record the important <laughs> points of, uh, of the game session. Basically, um, I have a big framework for the worlds that the worlds I plan that I make that's fairly detailed most of the time, but that still leaves a lot of stuff that you have to make up on the fly that you just come up with off the top of your heads. And so it's either, you know, buy that stuff for, for say forgotten realms and then rigidly stick to it because your players are going to be expecting that or do your own world that didn't fill all that stuff in and, and make up NPCs, locations, um, you know, new monsters, uh, whatever, uh, magic items, make those up on the fly. But then you need to write that down. And that's where I always fall, fall down is uh, I, I have way too often depended on my memory rather than um, writing it down. And don't get me wrong, I've got a great memory and I can run for two years off of stuff I remembered from two years ago. But now it's, you know, what, 14 years later, 13 years later, and a lot of the stuff from the last D&D campaign I, I ran is kind of fuzzy. Some of it I still remember uh, enough to have a discussion about it, but uh, a lot of the great details, a lot of the cool characters I came up with, a lot of you know things that you come up with off the fly are just lost. You forget them. They're gone. And if you really, if you're going to use that stuff again, either in the same game or with different players or rate it for another game, you know, write it down because stuff the players need to remember that definitely should be written down but stuff you like stuff you think is cool stuff you just want to remember you know did you come up with a new spell off the top of your head or a new appearance for an old spell write it down man it will only help you remember your cool stuff 10 years from now so what about and here's something i i wanted to try with my game and it never really took off just because uh well i'll explain uh, i tried to start a journal where i would write down things that happened during the session and it never took off frankly because by the end of the night i was thoroughly exhausted from being the game master have you guys used something like that in that sort of capacity well i usually take more notes during the game chronicling what the players are doing than beforehand. So I'm used to it, but it's not like in journal format. It's just like quick shorthand, like class notes kind of stuff. Uh, one of the suggestions from the chat is to have a, a laptop uh, or something like that to take notes on. And that's a really good suggestion. That's um, what I use. Or if you have like a, a tablet you know, or if you're if you're playing online, like through Roll Twenty or whatever, just use your own computer. Obviously, don't start typing while you're also describing the situation. But sooner or later, your players are going to start arguing about something or whatever, and then you can use that downtime for you as a GM to write quick notes. I would also suggest if you take quick notes during the game, always, always, always go back to flesh them out later to give more information than you wrote down in the heat of play because whatever mm -hmm. tiny little fragments of notes you wrote down during play may make perfect sense today, but by tomorrow, you're only going to halfway remember what you wrote down, and in a week, it'll be complete gibberish. You know, you can say something like, the man with the gold hat, 
and you, and you know exactly what that meant. You know exactly the, the situation where he popped up. You know exactly who he was and what his plans were. And then tomorrow you're kind of fuzzy. You're like, did I meet him here or meet him there? And then in a week you're like, why the hell did I give someone a solid gold hat? That's excellent advice for writers in general too. Because every writer carries a, a little notebook or or something around. And I don't, don't know how many times I've had an idea, wrote down something just like that. You know, like the man with the gold hat. Like exactly what it meant, and then, like six months later, get back to it. And like, what? What did that mean? Who was that? Oh no! So you got to be detailed enough to be able to jog your memory, but not get too detailed because chances are, I got a limited time to write it down. You have limited space. It's it, it's a fine balance you have to work out for yourself. Man, you guys are going to get me in trouble with Mrs. Dornell as I spend an extra hour after every session uh, <laughs> taking fresh notes. But it's it's a great idea uh, to have those sort of things to build on. Uh, if you don't have that sort of Rick Stump level of uh, just sheer volume of notes and, and world building to work on. Uh, do you guys have any recommendations for uh, any preparation tools for someone... Uh, like me, who doesn't have a fleshed out campaign, or someone who's just starting from zero. Um, I use a piece of software called Scrivener. It's a it's a piece of writing software. It's fairly cheap. It's about thirty bucks. What Scrivener is, um, it's available for Windows and for the Mac. It allows you to have a large number of notes in one document that you can organize any way you wish. You can, they're arranged hierarchically. So I just opened up a project um, and you can have, you know, on the top level uh, names, place names. Underneath that, some examples of different place names. And you can move your notes around and put up whatever you have. They even have a, there's a lot of different options depending on what you're doing with it if you're writing a novel or if you're writing a screenplay or whatever but i use it primarily right now for um setting and game design and i have you know in, in one project i might have thousands of notes and it doesn't the amount of ram it consumes is not uh linearly related to the number of notes it only uh, opens them up as separate documents when you access that note to edit it. So it uses a lot smaller RAM. You can put a thousand notes in it and it'll use about the same amount of RAM as, as one with, you know, a hundred notes. It's just a very, very flexible program that is great for putting in little notes so that each character, each NPC has its own note and you can arrange them in folders any way you like. Each place has its own note and there's even icons that you can stick on them one that looks like a picture of a person, okay, that's a character. One that, you know, looks like a, uh, a caution sign, a triangle with an exclamation point, okay, that's a threat or a danger, or maybe it means a villain in your game, or maybe it means a monster. There are a ton of these icons that exist that allow you to instantly look at one of these notes and know exactly what it is. And that makes things very, very quick and it has a robust search engine built in. So if you remember a name or a piece of phrasing, you can type it in and I'll show you all the notes that have that. It lets you find notes very, very quickly. It's a very robust program. I've used it for, I'm gonna say over 10 years now. Um, and 
as far as keeping notes and managing notes, especially huge numbers of them, it's it, it excels. And plus, you can also use it to write stuff up that you're going to, you know, handouts you're going to give out to your players or just background or whatever. You can use it for composition as well. It's not prim it's not uh, just for keeping notes. That's that sounds incredible. I, I've already found the uh, the link to the homepage where you can get it, and I'll, I'll put that in our show notes for today. Now, one of the most effective solutions that I came up with was actually really low tech. I just walked over to the drugstore in my neighborhood and picked up a little plastic Rolodex, a little cheap one for like five bucks that uh, had like little index cards on it that you could flip through and with little alphabetical tabs. And I just use it to keep track of my NPCs. There's just enough room to write on their stats and their most relevant skills. And then on the back, where you don't want to put someone's address, just a little blurb about their background and relationships with uh, other characters. I, I called it my Rolodex of Doom, and it served me very well. Um, by the way, one of the new features they just added to Scrivener is if you have uh, either macOS or Windows version and also have an iOS device, iPad, i phone or whatever, you can take phone notes uh, and open up full documents on your iOS device and it'll sync it to where you can then go home and you'll have that stuff available. So if you're playing at one place, you want to use your iDevice to keep all the notes, then you just tell it to sync. It'll sync on it, sync all of that, and it'll be available for you when you get home on your you know, on your PC, on your Mac, or your uh, IBM computer, IBM compatible computer, so that you don't have to, it'll sync those changes automatically. That's fantastic. Uh, a, a similar option that's free, um, and I'm not just saying this because I work for Microsoft, but Microsoft <laughs> OneNote. Uh, OneNote is a great productivity software that actually it's not really well known, uh, but it's a similar sort of, of uh, software where it's easy to take notes to make various pages and sub pages and things you can paste in images and whatever else you want and you can of course sync it to uh, the cloud for use everywhere and and that'll that'll even work with um what do we call it now OneDrive Microsoft OneDrive uh, that that's a, a free option it's not as full featured as Scrivener sounds like but uh, it's got a lot of uh, great features that, uh, if you're familiar with Word, it's very similar to that. Um, also great for organizing all your documents and things. I should point out, I'm uh, going to give credit to Roland Dobbins. Uh, he, he said it before I did in chat, but uh, people listening live don't know that, except I just told them. He's doing your job for you. Got to get on the ball. <laughs> Uh, so we are down to about the last 10 minutes. Uh, we had a great conversation with Rick Stump about uh, all those things. Uh, we are out of questions. If anybody in the chat has any last-minute questions for the panel of experienced Dungeon Masters, give it a shot in the chat. We'll get to it. Corey had a couple of questions early on. Um, uh, let me toss these out, and we'll see if uh, any of them are worth answering. Is it a good idea to make an entire game system from the ground up? Uh, I would like to tell you as someone who is building their own game system from the ground up, it's a terrible idea. Run away. Uh, 
Well, it, let me put it this way: if you're gonna if you're gonna cobble together something for use at your personal game table, then run to your heart's extent, uh, do it to your heart's uh, desires. You know, it, it'll be great. You can do it very quickly. You can take bits and pieces from a dozen different systems, and as long as it works for you, great. Do that. If you're talking about actually really creating your own uh, your own rules set that you intend to put together in a somewhat professional manner and either give away for free or try to sell. It's a terrible idea. It will take a lot, a lot of time. It will take a lot, a lot of development. And you're not going to see a lot of either financial remuneration or a lot of people pick up and enjoy your system. It's not a sane choice. Just take that as a commendation from someone who is currently designing his own game system. Uh, sane people don't start. And it's, it's sort of worth pointing out from the business side, like all the success stories you've heard over the years, like uh, there's a local guy, Mike Pondsmith, who, who did the Cyberpunk 2020 games, and he started with Mechtonzi, I believe, are Talsorian games, and all those other game systems that sort of cropped up in the early 80s, the mid-80s. Um, the market's saturated at this point. It's, it's, if you're looking at it as a business thing, it's not, it's, it's so saturated at this point for a niche hobby. Don't forget we're a niche hobby, guys. Um, another question from Corey M. What do authors have to do to convert a story world to a setting for an RPG? Um, that's not something authors should be doing. Authors should be writing more so they can make money. Um, that's something a fan should do or a company that wants to sell your game world as either a supplement for an existing game or as its own game in and of itself. Um, authors shouldn't be doing that. You have things that are going to make you more money that you can spend your time on. Um, so if you want to talk about fans converting stuff for their own RPG, that's a, I don't know, depending on what we wanted to do with it, it could be either be a long topic or a really short topic. It basically comes down to know the system you're going to be using well enough to be able to translate in-game descriptions into statistics, characteristics, attributes, classes, class features of whatever... Uh, you know, whatever system you're going to be using, whether it's D&D uh, &D or Storyteller or GURPS. Uh, a lot of people have already published for free on the web uh, their own conversions of stuff. So you might as well look at what they did and see if that works for you. Or, like with uh, GURPS 3rd Edition, they did a million billion different conversions of stuff. There's GURPS Discworld. If you like the Discworld stories by Terry Pratchett, they've got an entire manual, 120-something pages, where they converted Discworld to 3rd Edition GURPS. So, you know, if it's already done for you professionally, you don't have to recreate the wheel. Yeah, I can confirm that as an author who has tried to convert his novels into a gaming system. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. Hindsight's 20-20. Um, Gray asks, how do you judge if a challenge is the right difficulty if you don't have a lot of experience with GMing? I have my favorite answer. This is one of my favorite questions, Gray. When I'm a dungeon master, and I, I assume you're talking about a sort of lethal challenge, like a combat encounter or something. My best combats are the ones in which I am sincerely afraid I am going to kill the whole party. Yep. When, when I have that feeling, 
and and I've got that sort of tension. And most importantly, I'm letting the dice fall where they land. Those have made the best encounters in all my years of gaming. I'd have to concur. I'm scrolling through the chat right now, and those look like we've hit pretty much all the questions that we had answered earlier. So, well, we got a couple of minutes. Let's let's. Todd Everhart asks the flip side. What are your thoughts about turning campaigns into books? Don't. Uh, even professional authors who are great authors who did something like that. And I'm thinking, is wasn't it Ursula K. Le Guin turned a role-playing session into the castle of something or other back in the 70s? I know Steven Erickson is known for that. I, I don't know about Le Guin, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, let's start off with the small details. If your players created a character, then that character is copyright to them. And if you go and write a novel with their character in it, they can sue you. I'm not saying it would happen, but you want to have all your legal, um, you know, all the legal rights set out beforehand, get permission, explicit permission in writing on some kind of contract from your players in order to use the characters they created in a novel. Also, if you used NPCs that other people created, that you borrowed from a movie or a TV show or a GURPS supplement or a D&D supplement or whatever, the people who created that character also have copyrights to their own characters, and you'll either want to get per the rights for those, not going to happen, or disguise them enough, take them far enough away from their original source material that it's not going to cause you copyright problems. You're not going to get your ass sued up. That induces the introduces the third problem. You're already going to have to change a ton of stuff from the campaign just to write the novel. You're going to have to condense plot lines, combine characters. You're going to be doing a whole bunch of work anyway, the resultant book will not resemble the original campaign hardly at all except in vague, broad details, and you're going to be doing as much work as you would starting out making an entire new setting for an entire new novel. It may just be more satisfying work to just write a new book. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Uh, I'm going to wrap up here. Let me try and summarize what I believe uh, I got out of the great discussion tonight. When it comes to preparing for your games and preparing for your individual sessions, it helps to have a little bit of context of your game. And if that context comes from a book or movie or whatever, so be it. Because if you're going to build your whole campaign setting, it's going to be over years of gaming and, and writing. And on an individual game level, you should have some idea of what type of game you're running and have sort of a checklist of things that you need to do so that you're prepared. Whether it be uh, wandering monster encounters or get your maps in order. Make sure you know which characters are playing tonight so that you know what sort of challenges to give them. On that note, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Thanks, uh, Daddy Warpig and Brian Niemeyer and Mr. Rick Stump, who uh, is no longer with us, uh, for joining us. Um, I'll give you guys a moment to uh, say something real quick before we close up. Go ahead, Brian. Listening and for all the great questions. 
Uh, we will see you this coming Saturday. We're doing Geek Gab, same time as normal, right? Yes. Geek Gab Prime. Okay. So we'll see you for Geek Gab. And then uh, this next coming Wednesday, we've got another Geek Gab on the books planned with a special guest, Yakov Merkin, who has launched a new book. So we got that to look forward to. We'll also be talking about how to write non-human characters. Um, as for me, you know, you can get a, you can get all of the three Geek Gab podcasts now. We have three separate podcasts. On the books is for specifically about any kind of subject related to writers and writing and, and authors. Um, and uh, we've had two episodes so far. They've been, both been very well received. Brian has done a great job with his show. Uh, this uh, show, Geek Gab Game Night, is John's baby and it's all about role-playing games and game mastering and all of that fun fun stuff and then of course geek Camp prime which will stay exactly the same i do want to remind you though folks that if you have subscribed to us on youtube if you want to actually receive announcements in your email boxes to when these are going live or when they've been scheduled or whatever you have to super double secret subscribe down in the lower left hand corner underneath the video you'll have the little subscription button there it may tell you that you've already subscribed unless you've actually clicked on the little bell icon you haven't so click on the bell icon and you can get all of the announcements for the so you will know when the shows are going live you can come and participate in the chat and ask us questions and uh, make comments things like that also for those of you who've never listened before, maybe this is Geek Gab. You can find us on youtube.com slash Geek Gab. We are also available through the Google Play Store, through the iTunes Store, and on SoundCloud. Just do a search for Geek Gab, and you can find us in all three of those places. You can subscribe to the podcast to download to either your Android device or your iDevice or through SoundCloud, a file you can, you know, play pretty much on any device you have. We, uh, I just want to say I appreciate very much John uh, taking the reins of Geek Gab Game Night. It's very exciting. I'm uh, gratefully inviting me to be on. Thank you for handling all the closing for me, Daddy Warpig. You are the best. I, I handle all the boring business, so you can just talk about, you know, the fun stuff. Yeah, I love talking about the fun stuff. Uh, guys, it's been great having you on. It's been great talking to everybody in the chat. I love gaming and talking about gaming. We're going to be back probably two weeks from now, same uh, time, same place. Hope to line up a couple more gaming-related guests for you and talk about RPGs. This has been Geek Gab Game Night for Thursday, May 11, 2017. Thank you all, and good night.